This is a Giving Thought podcast from the Charities Aid Foundation's think tank, Giving Thought. Hi, you're listening to the Giving Thought podcast uh, with your hosts, Rod and Adam. Hi, Adam. Hey, Rod. Uh, so this is the podcast from CAF's Think Tank, Giving Thought, where we look at big issues of the world today and the news and beyond that affect the world of philanthropy and charities. And this week, we're looking uh, at artificial intelligence and effective giving. Uh, and I think you're going to kick us off on this one, Adam. Yeah, that's the idea, Rod. Look, you know, you discuss this kind of subject and it's going to seem to a lot of people maybe a bit techy and a bit kind of far-fetched or irrelevant I guess part of this is to prove that it's not and that actually we should all be thinking about this stuff now. Uh, and the first bit that I'm going to focus on really is about algorithms. I know, fascinating, right? Um, look, algorithms are basically a, a, a bit of mathematical code that uh, increasingly is done in the cloud on massive scale using big data. But it's really just a set of questions um, that produce an answer. So it interrogates the data with some questions, and it's a kind of, if the answer is this, then this decision is made. If it's that, then different decisions made. But it's already been used all over in, in your life. Uh, and most recently, it's uh, it's come up for charities in quite a big way, and not just for charities. Um, some of you will have noted the recent uh, scandal uh, that's been in the press in the UK and in other countries with slightly different uh, kind of events, but um, it's been about YouTube advertising. Uh, I don't know if you saw this, Rod, uh, but quite a lot of um, of major institutions, including the UK government, uh, but also a number of very big companies and some charities as well, uh, were found to be advertising next to some fairly uh, unfortunate uh, stroke inappropriate content uh, on YouTube. Um, and so questions were asked. A lot of organizations dropped their advertising for YouTube. But actually, underneath it all, this was a story about algorithms and our capacity to understand them and our desire to even engage with the question. And uh, I think a lot of organisations, and it has to be said, including CAF, who uh, we we were to some extent uh, caught up in this, that we were found to be uh, uh, advertising next to some, uh, some unfortunate content on YouTube as well. But the reason was we were advertising across the display network, uh, including on YouTube, placing advertisements that were ultimately matched using algorithms. You know those advertisements that follow you around on the internet? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, they follow you around because of the previous uh, information that you've consumed, the websites you've visited, but also demographic reasons. Uh, There's a huge amount of data that drives how advertisements are placed, and the algorithms that ultimately make the decisions are extremely complicated, and actually it's pretty difficult for anyone to understand how those decisions have been made and to go back and unpack it. But increasingly, it's a question we're all going to have to start thinking about. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's, uh, as you say, these kind of uh, 
this area of targeted advertising seems to be one of the first places where um, a lot of people are becoming aware of algorithms and the influence they have, and particularly the problem around them kind of acting as black boxes. So, um, you know, people realizing that even the people who set up and, and kind of own the algorithms quite often don't really understand yeah. how they're going to work once they're they're running. Um, and that's due to the, the, the complexity of them. Look, we... We saw this. Ev- we see this everywhere in our life, and we don't often know it. I mean, for years now, the hedge funds and many of the banks—the way that they make investments, they make micro investments—are based within, you know, often multiple transactions within a second. And it's computers that are making those decisions. They're able to crunch the numbers in a way which humans can't. Uh, we just give them the the questions to answer, but we don't ultimately make the decisions. And this is, you know, from how. Uh, come from how insurance companies decide to offer insurance to different customers uh, all the way through to, you know, has been seen in the US, uh, the way that uh, courts decide whether people are a risk, uh, a flight risk. You know, it's been rolled out across to save time and to, to take advantage of lots of data. We can pick lots of problems with this. And we can also think of lots of, adva- of advantages. And they are kind of, they're kind of multiplied when we think of charities and the way we think about philanthropy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, you know, one of the things that, that I found really interesting looking at this topic is that, um, you know, algorithms, as you say, have been around for quite a, a long time now in all sorts of different guises. But there's there's been a real kind of step change in the last few years yeah. um, in the way that they operate, which, you know, is kind of driven forward the whole field of artificial intelligence um and that's from my understanding kind of based around two things i mean f- first of all is just the availability of data that's all of a sudden there's this kind of massive explosion yeah. in big you know in data as a result of kind of open data movement but also all of these devices that are harvesting data and putting it out there like you know fitbits and things like that um and the other one is that in the algorithms themselves there's been the development of this idea of something called deep learning which is mm. essentially kind of self-reinforcing algorithms that that can improve themselves over time. So your old-fashioned algorithm was basically you set up a series of program uh, programs or procedures, a process to follow, and then you just do that over and over again, and it would have instructions about you know what to do, do A if you you know if B happens and and whatever. But it would never the, the the set of instructions would never change. Whereas these algorithms are able to go back into their own program, as it were, and alter it um, uh, as a result of the the way in which they they operate on the data and therefore optimize themselves. And and the problem is that makes them incredibly effective, and that kind of underpins Facebook and Google and all these sorts of things. But in terms of that problem of kind of entrenching biases that already exist in the data set, they're they're much better at doing that. So you know yes. these these. These algorithms operating on a data set that has a kind of historic racial bias, for instance, all of a sudden they get pretty racist. Um, yeah. And that, you know, that's a massive cause of concern for society. So I think this is a point to really to really pin down on. There, the, I think there is in some quarters an assumption that algorithms are somehow inherently impartial. You know, algorithms, you know, they're not racist or homophobic. But they, um, in fact, you know, they're able to look at the data in cold, hard, uh, calculating ways, and and come to decisions which are kind of they're they're not passed through the experiences and prejudices of of, of human society. So you know, they should be 
ultimately completely objective. That offers, uh, you know, lots of unique benefits for philanthropy. So if you think of uh, the idea of making decisions about how you give, ultimately how a charity operates and the decisions it makes and what it decides to fund, that could be have some unique advantages. However, that's all based on a, a flawed assumption to some extent. Um, so whilst algorithms are not prejudiced, people are. And the data that algorithms are using are generated from society. So essentially, uh, as you were saying, Rodri, you end up sometimes, uh, unless, you, unless you create algorithms specifically to avoid this, algorithms will end up being inherently racist if society is racist, and in some cases more so, uh, because it won't have the capacity or, or the kind of the need or compunction to try and uh, check some of those prejudices. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that leads us, I think, quite neatly onto what we're going to talk about next, which is, you know, what, how could you use uh, algorithms and artificial intelligence to kind of underpin a new model of philanthropy? And, you know, what ways are there doing that, which is what we're going to look at in a minute. Okay, so um, as we said just before that break, um, what we're going to look at next uh, is kind of follow on from the idea of algorithms and artificial intelligence and focus in on the way in which they interact with the idea of effective altruism. So one of the things that we've kind of talked about in our work, which is a, a little bit further down the road than perhaps what's happening now, is could you use or develop um, algorithms which operate on data about social needs and also on data about the impact of particular kind of charitable or non-profit interventions and do a sort of matching exercise to allocate money as effectively as possible to meet the greatest possible need. Um, I think at the moment, the main sticking point is the data sets. There's a load of data yeah. on social need, but it's all over the place in different silos. And there really isn't enough data on social impact uh, of organizations or consistency even where there is some so you know that's the challenge there but if we assume that we've overcome those problems does this work you know can you kind of have a version of robot philanthropy that is ruthlessly rational and, and efficient um obviously to do that the big question is what do you mean by you know most deserving or what are the best causes you have to have some way of kind of choosing uh, even if you're matching need um, and interventions you have to make some sort of value judgment about what are the most pressing issues and causes um, and one interesting model that kind of already exists um, philosophically for doing that is the idea of effective altruism um, which came out of the work of the utilitarian philosopher Peter Singer um, who uh, is well known for for his sort of writings on the the role of wealth and responsibility um, for a lot of years now. Uh, and along with a, a few other sort of moral philosophers, they came up with this model for effective altruism, where basically you kind of take the donor out of the whole thing. So you, you come to your desire to give with no preconceptions about causes or geographies or anything like that. And you basically sort of ruthlessly look at the evidence about where you could do the most good with your money and then that's where you give that money um and you know it's a very interesting kind of philosophical approach um there are some problems when you, know, you come to put it into effect in practice 
um, not least that it doesn't really fit with the way that philanthropy works in the real world. Um, the, you know, w- one of the problems is that uh, the model of effective altruism put forward by kind of philosophy students inevitably collapses into giving to the poorest people uh, in developing economies, because that's always where you can do the most good with any you know, given unit of, of money. But that sort of ignores the fact that, firstly, philanthropists all have kind of different worldviews and priorities and ideas. And that's sort of one of the the strengths of philanthropy is that it's about people's voluntary choices. Um, But also, I think people say, you know, that kind of slightly basic utilitarian arithmetic misses out a lot of the nuance when it comes to things like, you know, campaigning for social change, which it's very hard to put a a monetary value on because right. you know it, it might have a very little short-term effect or it might have only a tiny effect on each individual person but at an aggregate level it actually has a much greater effect in the long term than just doling out small amounts of money to individuals um and i think you know that that's a challenge for the idea of effective altruism yeah i guess a, a key problem is that effective altruism you know it's a really interesting and i think useful tool and i think it's attractive to a lot of people, probably for very good reason, though there's a central limitation that needs to be addressed before you make the decision to go down that route, and that is essentially: do you want to do you want to try and change the world within the parameters of what can be measured in the current system, or do you want to try and ch- structurally change the system uh, in some kind of larger uh more wide-ranging way so for you know for example uh in terms of effective altruism it would have probably made a lot more sense under that model to um fund uh you know health and education services in in south africa during the apartheid era rather than fund organizations that were opposing apartheid but ultimately i think you can make quite a strong case that the civil society movements that ultimately overturned apartheid have probably had a more significant impact on people's lives than uh, service-based philanthropy would. Though there's certainly an argument, but I, th- I think it's a fairly clear answer. So there is that criticism. I think that's right. And that's um, it, there's a sort of related criticism as well, which is um, you know by focusing on those things that can be measured um, and using a kind of fairly straightforward you know utilitarian calculus of kind of how do you do the greatest good for the, the greatest number um i think there are kind of unintended consequences to that if people take that in a slightly unusual way which uh, i think is what we're going to come on to in our our next section um but basically if you take um if you take any problem, even if it's got a vanishingly small probability of actually happening, if the number of people that it affects is sufficiently large, it's always going to make sense uh, to address that problem. Um, And we'll come on to why that might actually be a real problem right now uh, in a second. So yeah, just following on from the conversation we were having a minute ago, Adam, um, we were sort of talking about this potential downside of the effective altruism approach if you've got problems that are kind of vanishingly unlikely but affect very large numbers of people and uh the interesting thing is that that's already actually a challenge isn't it because um 
there's there's a whole group of people who've taken to effective altruism like ducks to water yeah uh, and that is silicon valley tech entrepreneurs um but the interesting thing about the way that they've taken it perhaps unsurprisingly is that instead of focusing on kind of development needs uh in the um in the third world what they uh have decided to focus on is kind of massive existential threats usually sort of technological ones um or you know kind of uh, extra planetary ones so yeah. things like the kind of you know technological singularity where uh artificial intelligence outstrips humans and decides to turn us all into canned food or you know uh, some kind of uh, meteorite coming from outer space uh, and impacting on the Earth and causing a mass extinction event. But the thing is, each one of those, if you work out the number of people that it would actually affect, it's it's sort of in the billions. And even though the probability of it is much, much less than most other things that could happen, when you do that multiplication, uh, it still works out to to be worth doing because the potential in terms yeah. of number of lives you could save is huge. Uh, and that seems slightly perverse to me. Yeah, there's a stereotype there somewhere, isn't there, about uh, sort of tech geeks and um, and fixation on kind of sci-fi <laughs> dystopia. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's not to say that they're not they're not legitimate concerns. Uh, no, but but I think the criticism, in a way, is more one which can be levelled at philanthropy writ large, but is particularly kind of ironic given the goals of effective altruism to be objective in in this example um and it's that philanthropy philanthropists tend to often if they've made a lot of money particularly if they've made the money as well they tend to see the way in which they made money as also the way in which they can help solve problems um and so you know uh and a the the approach of using big data and and crunching the numbers electronically and you know typically that's that's following a vocation um of how many tech entrepreneurs have made their money you know that's that's industry advising philanthropy in 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 practice and and the culture of thinking about these big existential threats is also you know part of a, a subculture within uh within that part of the workforce perhaps so you have this kind of the culture and system uh, systems behind how money's made tend to be reflected in how people see the solutions that doesn't seem to have disappeared with effective altruism despite its kind of goals of objectivity yeah i think you're absolutely right there and, and i suppose that's the yeah that's what i mean in a, in a sense when i say they've kind of skewed it from its original uh, kind of grounding in in moral philosophy um yeah it's absolutely right what you say though i mean it's kind of particularly in the field of tech the people who make their money in that area um very clearly feel that that's also the way to address social challenges in part because they probably feel they're doing quite a lot of social good through their commercial businesses anyway so i mean i think it's inarguable that the organizations like facebook have had a determinate effect on society sure. for better or worse and so it is it's clear that those technologies can have a massive social impact um and whether you argue their existing social impact is positive or negative there's an argument to say they could certainly be used as tools to to deliver yeah. you know kind of other social outcomes i suppose the the interesting thing that we're seeing is that because these entrepreneurs have that mindset they're starting to blur the lines very much between the kind of 
the longer term bits of their commercial business and their philanthropy. So oh. people like Elon Musk, you know, the kind of the billionaire founder of um, SpaceX and Tesla, does all kinds of things that that look on you know on one face as though they're kind of slightly wacky commercial enterprises like you know, interstellar space travel or um, elongation of life through kind of bionics and all these sorts of things, but also they would have a massive positive, I suppose, social uh, impact um, yeah. on on lots of people. So you know it's arguable that there's a sort of sweet spot at which a very, very high-risk long-term investment is almost philanthropy and vice versa. Um, And that's the kind of trend I think we'll see more and more of. I think so, and it's quite, although it opens up a lot of, it blurs a lot of ethical lines and things and makes it quite difficult to pigeonhole activities. It's It's hard to kind of rail against that development, but it does offer, you know, in a way it offers some threats to charitable organizations in a more traditional sense of whether they are going to be able to transfer this new generation of wealth into actual traditional philanthropy yeah i think that's absolutely right and you know case in point mark zuckerberg made what was probably you know the biggest philanthropic commitment of all time a couple of years ago but he didn't put it into into a traditional foundation he set up an llc or limited liability company precisely because he thought the foundation structure was too limiting um, and that, you know, raised some eyebrows, but I think we'll see more and more of that kind of thing coming out of Silicon Valley, definitely. Okay, well, I think that's all we've got time for this week, uh, despite, you know, fascinating conversation. Mm. But um, as ever, if you're interested in the things we've been talking about, um, we've got uh, blogs uh, and other publications about all of them. We'll put up links on in the program notes. Um, if you think there are things that we could be talking about or doing better uh, on the podcast, then drop us a line at giving thought at cafonline.org. And if you want to read more about these subjects and a whole host of other things about philanthropy uh, and the world of charities, then check out the website at givingthought.org. And other than that, we will see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.